let's take our Bibles and pick up where we left off. Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to ask if you would to stand while I read this passage, just out of reverence for the Word of God. Matthew chapter 25, beginning here in verse 1. A couple of stories of Jesus. He says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, saying, No, there will not be enough for, you, for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered and said, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then. For you do not know the day or the hour. For it's just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. And in the same manner, the one who received the two talents gained two more, but he who received the one talent went away and dug in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with him. And the one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you've entrusted five talents to me. See, I've gained five more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master." And the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted to me two talents. See, I've gained two more talents. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. See, so you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to them, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance. But the one who does not have, even what he does have, shall be taken away and cast out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is God's word meant to affect us, to change us, and to impact it. So let's let him do so with us. Please be seated. Two parables here. What is a parable, first of all? We, we can throw that term around, but I don't know that necessarily we always know exactly what that means and what we're talking about. Uh, usually it's going to be a story, and it's a story that's meant to come alongside some sort of a truth or a teaching to kind of color things in for you, 
just to kind of help you grasp the concept a little bit better. When I was in seminary, we had this one professor in particular, his name was Haddon Robinson, and he came and explained this pretty much in depth to us. But he reminded us that part of the, the, what, what a teacher or speaker of a parable is doing is they're going to give this truth, but you, the hearer, you're the one that has the responsibility to try and ask, now how does that line up with the truth that I've been taught here? You've got a responsibility not just in hearing it, but in processing it. And I'll give you an example of what I mean. I can say this parable. Even monkeys fall out of trees. Very short, but it is a parable. And you can walk away and you go, now what in the world are we talking about? Even monkeys fall out of trees. But if we're talking about a subject of, say, experts, and how experts have all this knowledge, and then I throw out the parable, but even uh, monkeys can fall out of trees, now you're making the connection. Ah, even experts can get it wrong. Monkeys are expert climbers. They sometimes fall. I get it. I see the bridge here. And this is part of what Jesus is doing. He's presenting these parables, and he knows something. Those who have a heart, and they want to know what he has to say, will listen. And if they don't understand, they'll follow up with him. But those who have a hard heart go, right. And then they walk away. And their lives are not changed, they're not impacted or affected at all. And in a way, the parable was a form of a judgment against a heart like that. Now, these two parables that we have in chapter 25, let's remember the context. Back in the beginning of chapter 24, the disciples come to Jesus. He tells them about the destruction of Jerusalem. And they say, now tell us about this whole, you're coming back and so forth. When is this going to happen and what are going to be the signs? And so he went through a number of ways of explaining what those signs were. But then chapter 25 is where he shifts a little bit. And rather than going into necessarily the signs, he goes into an exhortation to consider, what are you going to do now in light of the information that you've received? The fact that the king is going to return. Now, again, if we follow the theme of this whole book, remember what the point Matthew's been making. He's answering the question, if Jesus is the king, where's the kingdom? And you get this exposure that Jesus is, in fact, the king, but you find that the kingdom is yet to come. And this, is, this book is written to anyone, obviously, but it's especially pertinent to the Jew. Matthew is a Jew, and he writes particularly to Jews. And Jesus has let them know the king has come in himself, but the king will come again at a later point, and he'll establish his kingdom then. And so you've got verses 1 through 12 that give us this parable about the ten virgins, and they're all part of this wedding party. Now, Jewish weddings have these two components to them, all right? There's the first component, and that is when the groom would go over to the bride's house, and he would go and he received, would receive his bride. And there was usually ceremonies and things that went on. Now, having been the father of a bride, I've got to tell you, when that happens, you want it to go on forever. I mean, it's just an awesome moment. You're all excited. You want the celebrations to continue, and everyone's happy and glad that it's going on. So I totally get why the bridegroom is so late in getting to his own home to complete the wedding ceremony. First part was so good, and it went on and on and on. And you've got these virgins, and they've got these lamps, and now darkness has settled on them. So they've lit their lamps, and they've been burning through the oil. And yet what we're finding is they're so late in arriving that half of these people have run out of the oil. And so they don't have a way to light their path to get ultimately and escort the bridegroom onto the groom's house. 
Now, if this was a parable in today, we would say, you know, we would compare it to flashlights, right? Five of them had plenty of flashlights, and five of them didn't have enough flashlights, or, or um, batteries, excuse me. And so you've got these batteries, they run out, what do you got to do? I'm out of batteries. I can't help you, brother. You got to go run to Costco, Walmart, whatever, and go get you a big box, and then you'll be prepared. So as they go, as they do that, the wedding party happens. They come back. You missed it, buddy. The whole thing has happened, and you got left out of it. In verse 13, the story is meant to emphasize the action that Jesus is requiring by giving this particular parable. It's a mindset. Here's your mindset. Don't be caught unaware and by surprise. Good Boy Scout motto, be prepared. That's what you need to do. Be prepared for the return of the groom. Very easy. But that verse is also a smooth transition because it closes the first parable and it simultaneously prepares us for the second one. And not only being prepared, but how we're supposed to be prepared. What is it that we're supposed to do? And so the second story, again, not very hard to get, is it? Pretty straightforward. It applies even to today. Um, people in that day would travel, and you've got these investments, and you couldn't necessarily handle all this money here if you're going to be out doing business out there. So typically what you would do is, like you do today, you hire a financial advisor, a planner. That's what we'll do today. And you say, here's my funds. I want you to manage them. I want you to make more money. Use all your strategies and knowledge. Well, in that day, if you're going to be traveling, you needed somebody to do that while you're here. And so that's exactly what this individual does. And he distributes. And he does it according to something. Now, it's interesting to me that, first of all, what these guys get is a very large sum of money. We hear talent. What is that? Is that like a nickel? Is that a dollar? What, what is it? And today, sums five talents, that's about $6 million. That's a chunk of change. And thus, if you got two talents, you're talking about two and a half million. And if you got one talent, you got 1.2 million in today's standard and currency. So that's a pretty decent amount that he's given to these slaves and says, I want you to invest it and I want you to grow it. And verse 15 says that each were given an amount according to his ability. So he knew something about his financial advisors. He knew this one's been doing this for 30 years. He's going to be good. He's savvy. I've watched him in practice. I'm giving him more. This one, not as much. This one, brand new, out of the gate. I'm not going to entrust quite as much to him, but we'll give him plenty and, and he can deal with it. And the owner of the money's made a calculated risk, right? I see you, I see you, I see you. Here's your amount, here's your amount, here's your amount. And the risk is in accordance with what I think it is that you can do. But each of these slaves, each of these money managers, as we'll call them, had to also take risks too. So they had to be careful and shrewd in what they would do. And so in some cases, they were going to take a risk. They would make more money. In other cases, they might lose a little bit of money, just like you in today's stock market in particular. Uh, but there's this aspect of how do you get it to grow? You've got to keep putting it out, circulate the funds. But, but if you diversify the funds, you lower the risk. And as a result, you stand to gain a pretty decent portfolio that you're going to profit by. So the point here was each one was entrusted with an amount in anticipation of the owner's return. Don't, don't miss that part. So prepare for his return by increasing what it is that he's given to each one. So let me just go through them here quickly. The first one, uh, let's give him a name. I'm going to call him Steve Austin because he is the $6 million man. That's what he's got here. Uh, Steve Austin. 
So after retiring as an astronaut, for those of you who know what I'm talking about, he's got this good portfolio that he's got built up, and he's going and he's growing it. So he's got these stocks, these index funds, all kinds of things, mutual funds. He stays up on the Wall Street Journal. He knows what's going on in the world. He's keeping up with sort of the events that are happening, and he just continues to plot his uh, investments accordingly. And before long, you take your $6 million, he's now the $12 million man. The second one, I'm going to call him an ancestor of Warren Buffett. We'll call this guy Jimmy. And so Jimmy Buffett, uh, he's not a nobody from nowhere, but he's not waiting for a car to drive by just so he can wave hello to them either. What's he going to do? He is deliberate. He's purposeful. He's got a plan. And as a result, he does the same thing. He invests and he works hard and he diversifies. And as a result, he doubles it, two and a half into five million. But the third slave, we're just going to call him Frank. And if anybody here's name is Frank, don't take it personal. Frank, he takes the check that he's been given, and he goes over to the safe, and he puts it in the safe. Now, step into their shoes. Let's imagine that you went to a major investment firm, and you've got a financial planner. And you tell them, look, I'm going on a trip. I'm going to be gone for five years. I want you to take this money. Here's $1.2 million. I need you to grow it. I'm planning on retiring in 20 years. I want to see the progress in five when I return. But I need you to grow it. Take your knowledge. Build it for me. Make it better, stronger. And so five years later, you return. You show up here on the scene. And you go to Frank and you say, hey, Frank, how my funds doing? All right? I've kind of kept up with some things in the stock market. How are my funds doing? Frank says, well, um, the good news is you didn't lose anything. Oh, Really? Wow, you must have really taken a beating in the stock market and so forth. I mean, you know, I'm curious what happened. Let me see the uh, documents, so the trade, you know, slips that uh, show me the activity that you did over the last five years. Well, you see, that's just it. Um, don't really have one of those. Why not? Well, when you gave me the check, I meant to do something good with it, and then I heard old Billy Ray over here, and he was talking about you, and he says, yeah, with that guy, you want to play it safe, but I thought he said, with that guy, you want to put it in the safe. So I put it in the safe, and then I realized, well, then nothing bad will happen, and so here you go. Here's your money. No loss at all. Y'all feeling good about this? Not if it's your money. Not one bit. Because what you're going to say is, actually, I did lose money at a minimum. I could have gotten interest. At a minimum, you could have put it in like a small CD and gotten maybe 3% or something like that. And because you have been neglectful, whereas investing typically starts low, takes a long time before you start to hit the exponential curve, what you did was you took the whole curve and you skewed it way over here. I will never make that money back. You have cheated me out of that which I had invested in you. And then you get to the heart of the issue because of what old Frank said. I was afraid because I knew you would expect something of me and you would hold me accountable. I was scared. And the owner's response was, I don't believe you. I don't believe you at all. Because if you were scared, you would have at least taken an action that you could explain to me. But you did nothing. Nothing at all. And you are accountable. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is why his 1.2 million, that check, is then given to the one who made six. Because he did such a good job with it. He's saying, you know what? Maybe you can make up for the years that the locust has eaten, so to speak. And so I'll give it to him. And that's why that verse 29, to everyone who has, more will be given. 
and he'll have an abundance, but from the one who doesn't have, even what he does have, shall be taken away. We've been doing memory verses this week. That is your memory verse for this text, verse 29, because it summarizes everything. And Jesus is making a very clear point. While my people are waiting for my return, you will show your faith in him. You will show your faith and belief that he is going to return by the way that you prepare for it. Okay, great. What does that mean? What is the talent, if you will, that Jesus has entrusted to each one of us? I personally can't help but see that that talent is faith. God has given each one faith. If you have faith, faith is what moves you to obedience and an action. You're never going to do something that you don't believe. You always operate, at least in that moment, in accordance with what you believe. Romans 12.3 says that God has allotted to each a measure of faith. It's the same thing for us. God gives differing measures of faith to each one of us. And for those who take their measure of faith and take the calculated risk of using it in life, he says, that is a faith I'm going to grow. And they'll be given more. But for those who fail to take their measure of faith and apply it and in fact grow it because they're afraid or they're lazy, either one, and won't take the risk of obedience and faith, he says, you'll lose the little faith that you have. So the principle behind there, when it comes to your faith, if you don't risk using it, you will risk losing it. It's your faith in what? Well, first of all, in the deity of Jesus, that he is who he says he is, in his person. It's your faith in his word, that the promises that he has declared unto you are true. It's your faith in the fact that when he says something, you will believe it. And when there's a call or a command or an action, you will do that. Even when your experiences, even when your reason, even when your feelings maybe run contrary to this. But to have a measure of faith and to not use it, folks, that's no better than not having any faith at all. You see, and we get it. This is not, again, this isn't hard to understand. Take Tom playing the instrument. Many of you started out playing an instrument. Why aren't you at that level? Because you quit. Life got busy. It wasn't as important to you. You didn't practice and work on the instrument to the same degree. And before long, that ability sort of fades away. You might remember one or two songs from your past that you can sort of plink out, but you've lost it. It's the same thing in exercise. You start working out. You get strong. Why does it take so long to get fit and so quick to lose it? I don't know. Part of the curse, I guess. But you work out and you stay on top of it and you get stronger. But you quit working out, it does go away. And I'm here to tell you, the older you get, the faster it goes away. There's an aspect that you have to use it. And faith is the exact same way. If you fail to use it, then you will not grow it and it will not get stronger. And ultimately, you won't be found faithfully serving, believing, doing what God would have you to do in taking the calculated risk he would have you to take while you wait for his return. So the parable, it's not about what kind of works it is that we're going to do. It's not about what is it that you're going to go out there and you're going to do for God and it's going to be so great. Not one bit. It's not about how successful even you will be in your faithfulness unto God. It makes you stop and ask, what am I doing with the faith that God has allotted me while I wait for the return of the king? Am I obeying, which is the evidence of faith, 
or am I not? And let me just say this. Jesus knows what he's talking about here. I don't know if you realize this or not. Do you realize Jesus had to live by faith? He did. He most certainly did. Yes, he was God. Yes, he, had de- he was deity. But there's an aspect of his deity that he would put aside and he would grow in his faith as well. And that's why he could eventually endure the injustice of a whip on his back. He allowed God to grow his faith such that when it came time for that, he knew something. I've trusted God for what I didn't understand or couldn't do before, and I can trust him now when it's really hard and really difficult. He took the risk of growing his faith, demonstrated first by his growth in his relationship, his knowledge of God, his knowledge of God's word, and then it continued to grow as he stepped out in faith and took calculated risks and began to call on things and do things and even do miracles. And he's seeing the power of God at work and he knew God was faithful. So he took the risk and he grew his faith and now he takes that that which he has and he's dispersing it to his own to say, now here's your faith, you need to grow it. And you grow it by obedience. Now the specific context, the specific audience on this are primarily Jews. Jews that are going to be going through the time of the great tribulation. But ladies and gentlemen, you and I both know the the principle that is here, this is timeless. This applies to all of us at all times. How will you take the faith God has given you and how will you grow it because you're exercising it? The evidence of your faith is always on display. Always. You start with a commitment to God and to his word. Let me ask you this. Do you even read it? Do you study it? Do you seek to find out who God is as a result of getting into the word and asking him to speak to you and to reveal himself to you? And then when you're going through this and you're finding out who he is and how he lives and how he wants you to live, do you align your life with that? That's called obedience. And that is an act of faith. Every time you obey, it is an act of faith. You're saying, God, I trust you on this. Not my reason, not what anybody else is saying. I'm choosing to believe you. Y'all remember, there's a story in the book of Acts. A fellow named Saul. Saul is going out. He's breathing threats against the church. He's putting Christians into prison. In some cases, he's killing them. And then God appears to Saul and blinds him. But then God goes to another guy named Ananias. Ananias is a Christian. And he says, Ananias, I, got, I want you to do something. Ananias says, yes, sir. God, what is it? I'm, I'm ready to go. Well, you heard of this guy named Saul? Oh, yeah, I've heard about Saul. I want you to go, and I want you to talk to him and lay hands on him. Wait, are we talking about the same Saul? Saul, you know, the one that's been doing all that? Oh, yeah, that's the Saul. And you want me to go to him? We need to revisit this a little bit. I mean, let's stop and think about it. I'm probably not even going to get into the court wherever he is, right? I mean, why don't you just ask me to go talk to a Mexican cartel drug dealer? It would probably be a little bit easier. Uh, I can at least slip in as someone that might be mistaken as somebody who wants to do business with him. But Saul knows me, and this will not be good. Yet, that's the Saul I want you to go to, Ananias. God, i got to tell you, I'm not feeling it. I am not feeling it. This is just, all, all I can see is awkwardness, difficulty, uh, bad things happening. Uh, no. God says, well, that might all be true except for one thing. I told you. 
I told you to go. So Ananias does go, and God uses him and transforms Saul in the process. Um, folks, this is where most of you live today. This is the crux where your life is every day. Am I going to do and live in accordance with who God is and what he's called me to do in accordance with what, he, what that belief system that aligns with him, or am I going to go over here and operate over here? Because this just goes along better with common sense. This just goes along better with how I'm feeling today. That's when your faith hits the rub of the road. Um, it's a tough spot. Can I just bring a few up? Let's talk about evangelism. Why don't we evangelize? It'll make it awkward. You know, it'll put this weird thing between us, maybe some sort of distance. I'm not really feeling it in this time. Well, except for the fact that God has told us we need to be out there and sharing our faith. Will we obey or will we go with how we feel in the moment? This one really gets people. Let's talk about your money and your giving. Do you give of the money that God gives you? Are you giving to his causes and his work? And not just giving to his causes and his work. Scripture says generously and cheerfully. God, I'm just not feeling it. And it doesn't make any sense. I mean, look at all these bills that I've got, and I barely make ends meet as it is. Well, that would be true, except God said, are you going to grow your faith? Are you going to go with your reason or your feelings? God says, love your enemy. <laughs> well, clearly you can't mean that, God. I mean, no. They're, they're too hurtful, they're too bad, they're too evil, they're too wrong. They do so much against me. Well, that might be true, except for the fact I've called you to it. Will you obey and grow your faith as you obey in this which is hard? And this is a big one today. When God says, your identity now is in me, and it's not in what you possess it's not in what you can own. It's not in the image you can portray. It's not in your sexuality. Your identity is in me. And now what? Are you going to believe that and walk in that? Or are you going to go, not feeling it, God. I feel like when I own this or I wear this or I do this, then I get the respect that I long for and I deserve. God says, this is your chance to grow your faith, and this is how you do it. Will you? He says, if you want to prepare for my return, then you prepare for it by investing in your faith through obedience. Not your mind, not your reason, not your feelings when they are contrary to the clear revelation of God. You go with what he said. As the worship team comes on up, let me just end with a something that I hope can kind of put it all together. There's an individual, man, lived early 1800s, and he went by the name the Great Blondin. He was a daredevil. And this guy liked to take a big rope, and he would string it across Niagara Falls, and he would walk the tightrope. This is about 100 years before the Great Walenda. Walking the tightrope. He didn't have the technology that Walenda had. All he had was a two-inch thick rope, and the rope stretches. So when he would walk and get out in the middle over Niagara Falls, his, um, his rope would drop almost 50 feet total. The pole that he used to keep his balance was about five times heavier than what Walinda carried. And sometimes going back and forth could take him as long as 45 minutes of walking on a rope, going across and coming back. And then 
he started doing crazy stunts and acts. One time he went across with a wheelbarrow, and he walked the wheelbarrow across the rope, across the falls, turn around, come back, did the same thing in reverse. Another time he took a stove and some uh, food, put it in a backpack, walked out to the middle of the rope, sat on the rope, took his little uh, backpack, and he had a stove in there. He tied the stove to the rope, cooked an omelet. For everybody's waiting. And then there's a boat underneath him. He takes the omelet and has a rope system. And he kind of lowered it down to people on the deck, fed them the omelet, packed everything back up, walked back across, came back across Niagara Falls again. This is all true. I'm not making this up. Well, one day, in front of a crowd of people, he's uh, talking with them, and he says, y'all all think I can walk across this? And they all went, yeah, yeah, of course you can. We're all for it. And he goes, okay, do y'all think that I could carry a man on my back across there? Yes, yes, you could do it. Great. Who will volunteer? Nobody. So he turned around to his manager, a guy named Harry Calcord, and he says, Harry, I'm committed. You got to do it. And Harry Calcord, is, now he's caught in a vice because he knows, well, I mean, this is our living. We make a lot of money on this, and if I don't do this, we're going to lose money. So he got on his back. And he let the great Blondin walk him all the way across and then come all the way back 42 minutes. He says it's the, most, the longest 42 minutes of terror in his entire life. How could he do that? How could he do that with the great Blondin? It's because he built his faith. He saw what Blondin did before. He saw what he had accomplished before. And then when the time came, it was sort of like, what am I going to do in this moment? He knew, I can trust him. I can trust him. And he did. And ladies and gentlemen, God's going to call you to get on his shoulders. And he's going to take you in some pretty scary places, places you are not going to be comfortable with, times where your faith is really going to get stretched. And you're going to wonder, Lord, what in the world are you doing here? It's a place where your feelings will say, we can't go here. I don't like this. It's a place at times maybe even your reason will go, I don't know that this is right, but except God has made it clear. And we need to take this action. And Jesus reminds us, invest. That's your moment where you get to invest in your faith and you will grow your faith for tomorrow to find that God will just give you this ever-increasing measure of it. And as long as you're using it in obedience to him, and you be ready, be ready for his return. Because to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he'll have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away.